Good morning. I guess you people swam here or paddled here. This is a wet weekend, but you look mostly dry. We're in Daniel chapter 5. The title of the message is Foolish Feasting. Question, what makes for a great feast? Someone said food. Food. Appetizers, fruit, nuts, salads, meat, lots of meat. Desserts, after meal snacks. If it's a family feast, sometimes, you know, there's a whole bunch of cooks in the family, and so it's kind of hard to decide what will be on the menu. What else makes for a great, great feast? People, right? Friends, family, good conversation, some good stories, laughter, time to relax. If you're inviting people to a a larger feast, sometimes it's hard to decide who will be on the guest list. And if you're not on the list, you wonder how you might get on it. If you opened a dictionary, then you'd read a definition something like this. A feast is a social event with an abundant supply of food and drink. It commemorates an important event, maybe a birthday, a wedding, a religious festival, or celebrates an accomplishment, a graduation ceremony, an award celebration. In many ways, feasts reveal our highest values and aspirations, right? They reveal what's important to us. Does God need to be there? In the Old Testament, the people of God, they gather regularly to celebrate the great events in their salvation story. And so there's food, and there's people coming together, and there's the reading of Scripture, and there's song, and God is present. Last weekend, most of us were celebrating Chinese New Year, right? And some, just a few people, watched the Super Bowl. Apparently, the most watched program in all of U.S. history, 167 million Americans watched the Super Bowl. Now, I I like football. I grew up playing football. But when I watch the festivities, I'm concerned about what I hear and what I see, the media attention, the content of the interviews, the gambling the sensuality, the parties. And I ask myself, what does this annual feast reveal about what we are becoming as North Americans? What do we really value? What do we worship? Do we even want God at our feasts? Is he invited? You know, feasts, they can serve as a metaphor for life. They Feasts symbolize what we live for, what's important to us. So what are we living for? What does it look like to live well? I believe today's text can help us reflect on those questions and find some answers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again just for the opportunity to come together and gather and to worship your name. What a privilege. It's by your grace. Thank you that we can give back to you in a small way through offerings. Thank you that we can open your word and study it 
And your Holy Spirit is present to teach us, to guide us, to help us understand and then apply it to our lives. And so may we live your word. Lord, I pray that, again, nothing I say would stray from your word, that your living and active word would encourage your people, spur them on, build them up, and where necessary, correct them. For your glory, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Daniel 5 talks about Belshazzar. So who was he? Let's set the context. You'll remember Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar um, is at the center of chapter 4. He's the greatest king in Babylonian history. And God humbles him. God humbles him. He loses the throne. And he lives like a beast for a time. Until, until he looks toward the God of heaven And he's restored. He reigns for 44 years. And then in 562 B.C., he dies. He dies and he's followed by his son, Amal Marduk. Amal Marduk is assassinated by his brother-in-law, Neri Glisser. Takes the throne in 560 B.C. Neri Glisser is followed by his son, Labashi Marduk. Labashi Marduk is assassinated within a few months by a group that included Nabonidus. You're going to be tested on all of this in just a few minutes. Nabonidus is made king in 555 B.C., and he tries to make his god, Zin, the chief god in Babylon. The chief god is Marduk, or Bel. The people resist. They don't want to change the hierarchy of their gods. And so Nabonidus goes off to Arabia. Before he leaves Babylon, he leaves his son in charge, Belshazzar. And so in Daniel chapter 5, Nabonidus and Belshazzar, they are co-regents. Belshazzar is the king of Babylon. The events happen in 539 BC, only 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. So the memory of the great king, the most glorious king in all of Babylonian history, very much alive in the minds and the hearts of the Babylonian people. Very much alive. They remember Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel is about 80 years of age. Let's read Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Just pause for a minute. What's going on here? Belshazzar has invited 1,000 great ones into his massive hall, the The hall in the palace of Babylon was 52 feet by 170 feet. If you're metric, then 16 meters by 50 meters. A massive hall. He has gathered the nobles of Babylon, and as they feast, the Persian army has already encircled the city. What is he trying to do? He's trying to rally and unite the leadership of Babylon. Why does Belshazzar use the vessels of gold and silver from the temple of Jerusalem, these vessels that were taken from the temple by his father Nebuchadnezzar? Why do they drink from these vessels and praise their gods? What's the message? 
Well, first of all, it's an act of arrogance. Arrogance is an act of lifting oneself up before God and other people. Belshazzar, he identifies himself with the greatest king in Babylonian history. The word father is used. In Aramaic, father can mean ancestor or predecessor. Here it means predecessor because Nebuchadnezzar was not his biological father. But at this feast, he wants to identify himself with the greatest king, with Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's not only an act of arrogance, it's an act of idolatry. Idolatry is to worship something or someone that is not God. He worships the lifeless gods of Babylon. Bel, Ishtar, Nebu, Aku, worships his, his gods and remembers their con- conquests. It's an act of blasphemy. Blasphemy is simply to mock or dishonor God through our words and actions. So he's using the vessels to publicly shame the God of Israel. The God of Israel is an inferior God. The gods of Babylon reign supreme. And Belshazzar is their representative. It's an act of profanity. Profanity is to treat the sacred with irreverence and disdain. They drink from these vessels. These vessels, vessels which were sacred, which only the priests should handle in Jerusalem. It's a profane act. He spits in the eye of God. So as human beings, we need to ask ourselves some questions. Are our feasts, or the way that we live, are Is our feasting in any way arrogant, idolatrous, profane, blasphemous? It's really not that hard to discern. We just have to ask ourselves some simple questions like, who's at the center of the party? Who is being honored? Who is being lifted up? Who is being worshipped? Who is being revered? And if the answer isn't God, then our feasting is something other than godly. So first point, God is arrogantly dishonored at foolish feasts and replaced by other gods. God is arrogantly dishonored at foolish feasts and replaced by other gods. And in Western society, often it's us, ourselves. Why would Belshazzar dishonor God in the face of imminent defeat? Why? Why would he do this? Well, remember that Belshazzar probably feels secure. This city, Babylon, was magnificently well protected. There was a wall around it, eight kilometers of wall. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was so wide that chariots could pass by each other on the roof of the wall or top of the wall. There's an ample water supply. The Euphrates River runs through Babylon, so there's water for a long time. Historians tell us that there was enough food to last for five to six years so they could outlast the Persian army. And the Babylonian gods have won every war in Babylonian history, and so this war would be no problem for Bel or for Nebu, for Ishtar. Belshazzar foolishly feels secure. He's a fool, the classic fool. Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? As we read through the text, we'll discover that Belshazzar actually has knowledge. Reading on, Daniel 5, verse 5. 
Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the, the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Why the fingers? Well, you remember that the Egyptian magicians in Egypt, when they saw the plagues, when they observed what God was doing, they said, this is the finger of God. Or maybe you remember when God gave the commandments to Moses on stone tablets, the commandments were written by the finger of God. Or maybe as you've read the Psalms, you you have read that the heavens are the work of his fingers. So the fingers represent the hand of God. God is present. Belshazzar throws this amazing feast, publicly shaming God. But then there's just a few fingers and a few words, and he comes undone. His knees are knocking together. His hips and legs lose their strength. The language tells us that he literally loses control of his bodily functions. God doesn't shout, he doesn't clap, he doesn't thunder, just a few fingers and some writing on the wall, and Belshazzar comes undone. What would God write on the wall of our family feast, or the wall of our business party, or the wall of our church celebration, or the wall of my life or your life? What would God write? You see, God, whether invited or not, is present at our feasts. God, whether invited or not, is present at our feasts. He always is. The psalmist, as he meditates on God's presence in his life, writes the following, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. Altogether, We can live as if God is not present for a time, but the truth is, he is present. Belshazzar offers gifts. He says, hey, if someone can interpret what's on the wall, I will give them a purple robe, an ex- fabulously expensive garment. I'll give that person a chain of gold, a mark of high rank. That person will become the third ruler in the kingdom. And so after Nabonidus and after me, then this person will be the third ruler of the kingdom. Why are the wise men unable to interpret the writing? It was written in Aramaic. The words were clear. Why were they not enabled to interpret it? The queen, she enters the scene and she has some counsel for Belshazzar. A question before we read on, who is not at the party? Who has not been invited to Belshazzar's feast? Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. 
In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Queen probably refers to the queen mother. The wives were already present. And so scholars would say that this queen is probably the queen mother, maybe the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. Anyway, she remembers Daniel. She refers to Daniel as Daniel. Why does only she remember Daniel? Why has Belshazzar not remembered Daniel? Why have the wise men not remembered Daniel? Has Daniel been shamed? He was the chief of the magicians. In the third year of Belshazzar, Daniel prophesies the end of Babylon in the third year of Belshazzar, that Media and Persia will conquer Babylon, Daniel chapter 8. So maybe Daniel is not welcome at this feast. The third point, God's messengers are often excluded from foolish feasts. God's messengers are often excluded from foolish feasts. If you follow Jesus faithfully, do not be surprised when you are not welcome at Babylon's feasts. If you represent an unwelcome presence, an unwelcome voice, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised when Babylon does not want you. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So imagine the scene. Daniel is walking into this massive hall. And the sacred vessels of his God, of the temple in Jerusalem, are strewn across the tables, the chairs, maybe on the floor. People are bewildered, distraught, disheveled, drunk. And Belshazzar, when he addresses Daniel, he says, You are that Daniel one of the exiles of Judah. You are a captive. He doesn't affirm Daniel's wisdom, his understanding. He says, I, I've heard, two times he says, I have heard that you carry understanding and wisdom. You can hear the tone of arrogance in his speech. And then Daniel answers, verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and keep your rewards for, to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel's response is very blunt, isn't it? He doesn't come in and say, Oh, king, live forever. No deferential politeness here. Not really interested in the gifts of the king. He knows the kingdom is over. The king has nothing to give. What's Daniel's message to Belshazzar? Verse 18, O king, 
The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. So he's saying, Belshazzar, you know the story. Everyone in Babylon knows the story of Nebuchadnezzar. You know that he was the most powerful, glorious king in all of Babylonian history and that God humbled him and became like a beast until, verse 21, 21, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. There's the lesson from chapter 4 again. Belshazzar, you know this story, but you have chosen not to remember. You have chosen not to repent. You're arrogant. You have never lifted your eyes to the Most High. You have never looked away from yourself and honored the Most High God. Instead, you have resisted and you have profaned the most sacred vessels of the temple in Jerusalem in this blasphemous, idolatrous feast. Your life is in God's hands. Every breath you breathe is an act of God's grace. And yet you have dishonored the Most High. Belshazzar is held accountable for what Nebuchadnezzar learned. Belshazzar was to have learned as well. Fourth point, God holds us accountable to live by the spiritual light given. God holds us accountable to live by the spiritual light given given. Do we remember the lessons that God has taught us? Do we meditate on them? Have we written them down? Do we journal them? Do we remember? Not only the lessons that he has taught us individually, does he? Do we remember the lessons that God has taught our families? Some of us are here because our grandparents came to faith a hundred years ago. In some of our families, there are stories of people that have survived wars, that have come as refugees, that have lived through concentration camps, that have been delivered from demonic oppression. Some have paid a huge price to follow Jesus. Do we live in light of the lessons that God has taught our families? That we're here as a miracle of God's grace. You see, in our individualistic society, we think we arrive on the scene of human history and just create our own identity. 
We have no need to remember. We think we can construct a world of our own will. We have no need to submit to the will of another. Truth is not passed on to us. We create our own truth. We are not, by God's grace, born into a larger story of God, church, and family. Rather, somehow we place ourselves at the center and live with the illusion in North American society that because of our tremendous brilliance and ability and ingenuity, we are a success and it is all our own doing. Do we remember the lessons that God has taught our church? Have we read our local church history? There's a book called The Leaders Who Shaped Us, and in that book there's a chapter about uh, Pastor Herb Neufeld, and the chapter is entitled, He Opened Doors and Pushed Out Walls. (laughs) A great title. But Pastor Herb Neufeld opened the eyes of this local church to evangelize. He pushed open the doors. He was the one that brought eldership to this church. So are we mindful of the things that God has already taught this local church? And do we live in light of the lessons already learned and give honor and glory to God for what he has done by his grace? Have we learned from the scriptures? We have the written word. We have the written word in multiple versions in many different languages. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Hope. So we have the testimony of the Old Testament prophets. We have the record of the life of Jesus. We have the writings of the apostles. We have the story of the early church. We have over 2,000 years of church history to learn from. So have we learned and do we remember And do we cherish? Do we live in light of what God has revealed to us? About 200 years before the feast in Babylon, the prophet Isaiah prophesied the following. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures. This is about Babylon. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. The Lord held Belshazzar accountable for the lesson taught to Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar just chose not to remember. He chose to live by the sorceries of Babylon rather than submit to the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar, he repented in chapter 4. Belshazzar never did. He chose to be a fool. So what does the writing on the wall mean? Verse 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel and parsing. So there's the Aramaic words. Many, many tekel parsing. Many means mina, tekel means shekel, and parsing means half shekel. So they're a sequence of weights. If you read them as nouns. But if you add vowels to the consonants, then many becomes numbered. 
Tekel becomes Wade, and Parsing becomes divided or Persia. And Daniel gives the meaning by the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Petis, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. The king of heaven, the one who is sovereign over all of history, he has determined the end of Babylon. Belshazzar chose to dishonor God. He opted for a blasphemous, idolatrous feast, and God decreed his end. Point five. God gifts us with the stewardship, numbers our days, and determines our end. God gifts us with the stewardship, numbers our days, and determines our end. Belshazzar was given the kingdom, and he did not steward well. A stewardship is to take care of something that actually doesn't belong to us, but God has given it to us. God has given all of us something to steward. What has he given us? He's given us a life. He's given us time. He's given us gifts and abilities and talents. He's given us relationships. He's given us roles in family, in church, in the world around us. And are we stewarding well? God gifts all of us with the stewardship. He numbers our days. He determines our end. Verse 29 Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the ruler, the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Babylon was done, and this marked ancient history. If you were alive in the 1940s, you would remember the day that World War II ended. You would remember where you were, who you were with, what you were doing. Most of us were alive in 2001. And so we would remember what happened on September 11th in New York City in 2001. We remember where we were, what we were doing, who we were with. I happened to be in Prince Rupert watching a television screen, and I remember watching horrified as those two buildings that represented American power and wealth crumbling. I thought, it's surreal, it can't be true. I drove to Terrace, turned on the TV again, and watched again images of those buildings falling. That event has marked our story in the 21st century. The fall of Babylon marked ancient history. It's well documented. Greek historians like Herodotus and Xenophon have written about the fall of Babylon. What happened? How could this fortress fall? Well, the Persian army encircled the city and they diverted the Euphrates River, enough of the water anyways, so that the water went down a channel into a swamp and filled the swamp. It became a lake. This lowered the level of the river to below the waist of the Persian army, and so the Persian army was able to enter under the wall, enter Babylon, and they found Babylon feasting, and Belshazzar was killed, and it was over. Babylon, the great Babylon, was done. October 12, 539 B.C. 200 years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied regarding Babylon. Go up, O Elam, 
Elam is Persia. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. All the sighing she has caused I bring to an end. They prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield. For thus the Lord said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. So Belshazzar, he is feasting. It's an ultimate act of folly. He is feasting at his graveside with a Persian army encamped around the walls of Babylon. The Persians were there when the feasting began. Ultimately, all of our feasting that does not recognize God to be God is foolish feasting. All of our living that does not acknowledge the Most High is foolish living. So how are we living? The main point is the foolish feasting mocks God's sovereign presence, excludes his messengers, rejects our accountability to God, and despises his eternal purposes. Foolish feasting mocks God's sovereign presence, excludes his messengers, rejects our accountability to God, and despises his eternal purposes. Of course, we must ask the question, is there a different way to live? Can the story end differently? And the good news is that God invites us to live for his eternal feast. God invites us to live for his eternal feast. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells a story. He's addressing some very angry religious leaders. And this is the story. He says there's a king. The king, he prepares a wedding feast for his son. The feast is ready. The dinner is prepared. And messengers go out and invite people to the feast. But those who receive the invitation, they're just too busy. They go to their farms. They go to their businesses. Some kill the messengers. And so the king destroys the city. And then he sends out other messengers and just says, hey, invite everyone, anyone that might come to the feast. And the wedding hall is filled And then we read in Matthew chapter 22, verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And he's thrown out and condemned. How do we get our wedding clothes for the feast? How do we receive our wedding garment You see, the king needs to give us our wedding clothes. And the good news is that the king, God, sent his son, Jesus. And on this Valentine's Day weekend, we celebrate the ultimate act of love. Jesus gave his his, his life so that our shame might be removed and that we might receive his clothes of righteousness. We do not enter the feast based on our own merit, our own worth, our pride. The only way into the feast is through the blood shed for us by the Lamb, Jesus. It is only by grace that we enter the feast. And so the question is, do we have our wedding clothes on? (laughs) Have we received these clothes of righteousness from Jesus? We all live by grace, every breath. 
Has God been trying to get our attention? Maybe a a near-death experience, maybe a close call. Maybe we've heard the message of Jesus multiple times that we have just never surrendered. You know, it is very foolish to presume the grace of God. To think like this, well, there's always tomorrow. God will always give me another chance. After all, God is gracious. Belshazzar did not get another chance. It is foolish to presume the grace of God. And if we have received those wedding clothes, if we've received them by grace, are we living in light of them? Or do we follow Jesus? Do we participate in church life kind of half-heartedly, out of habit, because of family pressure to maintain appearances? Are we still lured by Babylon's feasts, enticed by them, drawn to them, enamored by the feasts of Babylon? What would God write on the walls of my life or your life? In Western culture, in the English language, we have these two sayings, and everyone says them. Christian or non-Christian, your days are numbered, and the handwriting is on the wall. They're both true. But what's important to know is that our days are numbered not by us, but by God. And then the Lord does write on the walls of our lives. And the question is, what would the Lord write? Are we still feasting in Babylon or are we living for the eternal feast? The Lord has invited us to his eternal feast. We only live well when we live for the glory of the king. The one who has, by his grace, given us clothes of righteousness. Has opened the way into the father's presence. Any other kind of living is foolish feasting, is foolish living. May we live every day, every breath we breathe, may it be for the glory of God. May we live with our eyes set on the Most High and His eternal feast. Amen? Amen. Let's stand to pray. So, Father, we just... uh, We humble ourselves before you and recognize, Lord, confess that there are days when we are lured by Babylon's feasts, when we desire what Babylon offers. Forgive us. And we thank you again for sending Jesus to take our sin upon himself. While we were yet sinners, Lord, you died for us. Thank you. And it's by your grace that we're here. And I pray, Lord, if there is someone here who has not given their life to you, that today might be the day that they might surrender to you and find life. They might repent of their sin, receive you as Lord and Savior, and be filled with your Holy Spirit and live forevermore. Oh, God, may today be the day. And for those of us that have received clothes of righteousness from you, Jesus. May we live in light of them. Oh God, may we keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we run the race set before us, laying aside everything that might entangle us. 
Oh, Lord, may we live for your eternal feast. And not only for our own salvation, Lord, may you fill our hearts with compassion for those that still live in Babylon and do not know you. Those who are blinded by their own sin, by the enemy. Oh God, may we live with compassion that many might gather for your eternal feast. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that you have given us, the eternal hope, the sure hope. And now may... May we live, Lord, by your grace. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.